Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 165 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most prolific and accomplished content creators currently working in television. A writer, director, producer, showrunner, and activist best known for creating or co-creating the WB's popular, FX's Nip Tuck, Fox's Glee, NBC's The New Normal, and Fox's Scream Queens, as well as the ongoing FX anthology series American Horror Story, American Crime Story, and Feud, Ryan Murphy. The 51-year-old who was born in Indianapolis has led many lives. He was a closeted gay kid from a conservative religious family in the Midwest. Then an ambitious Indiana U alum turned Hollywood-based entertainment journalist. Then a screenwriter whose work attracted the interest of the likes of Steven Spielberg. And then, before he knew what hit him, starting in the late 90s, a TV power player of increasing import and influence. Over the years since, by successfully jumping between genres and styles as few ever have in the history of the medium, from teen fair to darkly sexual stuff to a musical to gothic horror to period piece drama, not to mention altogether reviving the anthology series, he has become one of TV's few behind-the-scenes players whose name is known to a large segment of the general public and makes them more likely to tune into something. Along the way, he also has picked up 23 Emmy nominations, four of which turned into wins. Best Directing for a Comedy Series for Glee in 2010, Best TV Movie for The Normal Heart in 2014, Best Limited Series for The People vs. O.J. Simpson American Crime Story in 2016, and Best Short Form Nonfiction or Reality Series for Inside Look, The People vs. O.J. Simpson American Crime Story in 2016. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of Ryan Murphy Productions on the Fox lot, Murphy and I discussed a wide range of topics. Among them, what it was like growing up gay in Indiana in the 70s and later trying to make his name in Hollywood as an out-gay content creator striving to incorporate diverse characters and storylines into his work, how his greatest creative disappointments, like the failure of a pilot called Pretty Handsome and the short life of the semi-autobiographical sitcom The New Normal, helped to pave the way for some of his greatest successes, how and why he wound up with a stock company of people with whom he repeatedly collaborates, most famously Jessica Lange and Sarah Paulson, but also many others, what the roots are of his fascination with Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, as well as the Oscars, all of which are at the center of Feud, Betty and Joan, for which he received three Emmy nominations in July, Best Limited Series, Best Directing for a Limited Series Movie or Dramatic Special, and Best Writing for a Limited Series Movie or Dramatic Special, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Ryan, thank you so much for doing this. I really You're appreciate welcome. It. We always just begin with a basic one. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born and raised in Indianapolis, Indiana, and my father was in distribution for the local newspapers, the Indianapolis Star News, and my mother, for the first couple of years of my life, was kind of a stay-at-home mom. She was a beauty queen, Oh yeah, and then had me. <laughs> and then she had different different you know odd jobs but it was a very middle class life i was raised very roman catholic and mm -hmm. went to catholic school and my backyard was a cornfield with a big crucifix in it so <laughs> you were an altar boy right i was yeah you i guess for reasons that i'll leave to you to share you were uh, obsessed from a very early age with it sounds like film tv just all of it right I was, you know, I really was. It was my grandmother was a big television and movie buff. And she spent a lot of time, you know, raising me. And my mother was into it as well. My grandmother's tastes were much darker. She liked horror movies. And my mother liked Barbara Streisand movies. Yeah. So I kind of got the whole the gamut. Whole but I really grew up, you know, loving it and feeling that it was a, an escape from a very rigorous conservative life. You know, I read a lot of Hollywood movie books and the making of books and biography books. There, there was a book that I had from the age of four on that was about the making of Gone with the Wind. I must have read it like <laughs> once a month. I was obsessed with, with all that stuff. So for you, it was really just sort of a mental escapism, right? Yeah, it was a way out, mm -hmm. I thought, you know. I always wanted to come to Hollywood, even as a young kid. And I always knew that I would end up there. I just didn't know how. 
And a key thing that I have to ask, I hope it's not too personal, is just when you first realized that you were gay, because this in a lot of ways shaped a lot of your childhood, right? Yeah. I think I always knew, you know? I mean, I was always, I just knew. So I would guess from the earliest of ages, I was always aware and I was very, I guess, lucky to feel like that it was, I was okay. Like I was just who I was and what can I do? I never tried to fight it. I never tried to hide it. But did others give you a hard time? And it sounds like before you even knew how to classify this from other interviews I've read, it sounds like your dad was wanting you to be a more like him, whatever yeah. that was. Yeah, and- yeah, yeah. I mean, I had a lot of <laughs> late nights with my father or he'd sit me at the kitchen table and I remember the glow of the clock and him saying, why aren't you more like me? I don't understand it. Cause he was a big guy. He was like yeah. six foot five and an athlete. And yeah. I was a weird kid cause I was both popular and unpopular. Mm-hmm. You know, I was accepted by the popular kids and the athletes and, and I guess because I, I seemed funny and confident and I was also then picked on because I was in the drama club mm-hmm. and I was interested in the musical stuff. So I always had a duality to my life. I always had. And then when I was 15, you know, I started having affairs and my parents found out and I got pulled out of a camp. Well, because that was a particular and sort of cataclysmic moment, right? Something happened at 15 that blew up your life in a lot of ways, right? It really did. It was the first time I was, I felt like, oh, this is going to be my life. I'm going to be punished for who I am. And that's exactly what I felt. Now, having two children myself, like... I cut my parents a little bit more slack because, you know, I was 15 running around with 20-year-olds. And they found out? And they found out and, you know, they I had to not see that guy anymore. It was a really big deal and I was Camille in the backyard on the swing set. And But the best thing that happened was they took me to a shrink mm-hmm. and I lucked out to get a shrink that I think my parents at the time thought would change me mm-hmm. or help change my mind or mm-hmm. maybe it was a phase and the shrink spent four sessions with me alone. Mm-hmm. And I was young. I mean, I was 15. Yeah, yeah. And after that session, that came the parent, my parents came in and the shrink told my parents, like, look, this is who your son is. He's very willful. And <laughs> I think he this is his nature. So you have a choice. You can either accept him and love him or you can fight it and lose him. Did they get on board? You know, they did. It was the longest car ride I've ever had. It was like half an hour back to my house and nobody said a word. And they never brought it up again when I was in high school or college. I was never punished for it anymore. I was never questioned about it anymore. And from that conversation with the shrink, you know, came a great freedom that I remember thinking, well, fuck it. Yeah. I now have permission to do everything that I want to do and be who I want to be and somebody has just an adult has said it's okay. So I remember feeling like, okay, well, if I lose my parents, I lose my parents, but there's a way out for me. They never really spoke about it again until I was much older. And then when I was in my thirties, you know, at that point I was past my anger with them really. So we had long talks about their regrets and how they wished that they had had more information. And Mm. I think that that was a, you know, there was no Ellen back then. There was, there was, there was nothing to look to or mm-hmm. to like, you know, and I think as parents, they were just very worried and afraid about, you know, what would happen to me. Sure. So you graduate high school, you go off to, I guess, pursue journalism at Indiana University. Then you were pretty determined as soon as that was over, you're getting out of there. Yeah. Like, I think I had, I had always wanted to leave. And I remember like I, I was, when I was a really young, I think a freshman in college, I was a journalism major, and that's the time you start having internships. So I left, the first place I went was Knoxville, Tennessee, and I had a summer alone, and I loved it. And then the next summer I applied and shockingly got accepted at the Miami Herald, and then mm-hmm. I loved that. And then the next summer it was the Washington Post. And, and then after that I was like, I'm not going back. And I finished my school in Washington, D.C., you know, through correspondence and but it was totally you at that point. You're not thinking I want to be a director, producer, anything like that. It was I want to be a journalist. Yeah, you know I'd been accepted to film schools in California, but it was that weird thing about 
you know, my parents, I couldn't get a scholarship because they made too much money, but they didn't make enough money to send me, Oh, geez. nor would they send me. I mean, I paid, I did three jobs to put myself through college, you know, I lived on chocolate malts and cigarettes. They, they were just <laughs> like, we're not paying for you. And that was because they did not support the idea of going into the arts or it was just generally it's like, it's time for you to grow up. Yeah. You're 17. Yeah. Go pay your own way. And yeah. I did. Yeah. I don't know. The weird Hollywood thing was I always knew that I would come out here and I, I didn't know how and I didn't know when, but I always knew there would be a moment. And there finally was the, the light bulb moment where I was in Washington, D.C. and a friend of mine was moving out here for an advertising job. And as soon as he said he was moving out here, I said, I'm coming with you. That's it. I'm coming. <laughs> and I did. I knew no one. I had no money. Where'd you stay? You just moved with that guy? He, I, I slept like on a sleeping bag yeah. in a living room. I had nothing. And then I convinced some of my journalistic outlets to let me do freelance articles. And then I got some money and I was able to get my own place with a, you know, a one bedroom. Mm -hmm. So I really came out here with nothing and I just instantly loved it. I remember mm -hmm. that year was so amazing for me. Like I finally like got here. Now I have to figure out what am I going to do? You have said that Throughout your 20s out here, you were, I guess, dating Bill Condon. He lived next door to me when I finally got the place with the one bedroom that I could afford. Yeah. So these two guys who go on to such a exciting thing, I guess maybe he'd already started to? He had started to. He had been writing and, and directing sort of low-budget horror movies. And I think when I met him, he was getting ready to do a, a Lifetime movie, yeah. direct a Lifetime movie. Yeah. And he had a dog. And I had a dog and we would walk our dogs and that's really how we met. And yeah. then very shortly after that, we started dating and then moved in together in Silver Lake. And, you know, Bill was 10 years older than me mm -hmm. and was a really good teacher. Like Bill is the one who taught me about Joni Mitchell mm -hmm. and the New York Times. And at that point, I was sort of having a lot of success doing celebrity journalism and it was going well. And this you were doing at Entertainment Weekly and then the LA Times, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was all simultaneous to dating Bill. Yeah, and I saw him struggling. Yeah. And, you know, I saw him trying to break into the business. And, and I decided to, again, I was out here. And it was like, well, when, when am I going to do? When's, when's my moment? What do I want to do? I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew the way in was to write. So I would work all day and then stay up till 3 in the morning. And I wrote a script, my first script, really. And the next thing I know, an agent read it. And then the next thing I know, Steven Spielberg called up and bought it. But so that was my, this is why can't I be Audrey Hepburn? Yeah. Never made, but it was a, it was a romantic comedy and put you on the map. It did. I got, you know, it was in all the trades, the big announcements. And from that, everybody sort of wanted to meet me because Steven had, you know, <laughs> bought it and right. loved it. And it had a very clever title and right. I got to work with him on it. And he was very kind to me. And then I, I constantly, at that point you can go in and you could, you know, this was like 96, you could sell movie pitches. Right. So that's what I did for like two years. I sold, just sold pitches. pitch after pitch after pitch. And I just kept writing. And I realized at that point, I didn't really want to be a writer that what I really wanted to be was a director producer. Mm -hmm. So while you're breaking through with that, I guess Bill's breaking through with gods and monsters, yes. almost exactly the same time. And then it seems like even though you're selling these film pitches, it seems like it became apparent pretty early on, certainly by, 99 when popular your first series went on the air that you were gravitating more towards tv do you have any idea why even then before you were successful in tv that was something that you were drawn to more than maybe film or theater well i really love the control of it i remember i was very frustrated with the you know, when you're new and starting out, you do draft after draft after draft. Although I had a lot of great gigs in there that I learned a lot. Like I got to do a draft of this Rupert Everett Madonna movie called The Next Best Thing mm -hmm. where, you know, I was flown to New York every month to yeah. interview Madonna and then come back in and put things about her life in the script. So I, I learned a lot. <laughs> yeah. and, but I was just getting frustrated with the draft after draft. And um, it, it was difficult. And for me, mm -hmm. and then I got into the television thing and I didn't even want to do it. My agent at the time said, well, you should, this is not a movie. You should pitch this as a television show. And I did. And all four networks bid on it. This is what became called popular. Yeah. And that was right during the era of Dawson's Creek. So everybody wanted that next teen thing. Right. Yeah. So I did that and I just loved the pace of it and the energy. And I liked creating something and writing something. And then you were shooting it a week later and I liked 
the showrunner thing of it. I was very involved and still am, you know, in the costume design and like what color is the wallpaper and what's the, like all of that I love yeah. because I wanted that control of my work and sort of in television I got it. And once I sort of got, you know, that bug, I wasn't really interested in anything really else. I've sort of dabbled in film a little yeah. bit, but I don't find it as interesting. So it was liberating. And at that moment, once that show got on the air and I was a couple episodes in, I had been always waiting for a sign. Like, what do you want to do? And how are you going to do it? Like, how are you going to get to LA? Well, I don't blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then boom, I remember waking up one day and saying like, okay, well, this is it. And this is why I'm here. And this is what I want to do and what I'm going to keep on doing. And then I felt a great relief because I had a direction. And before I had just been sort of figuring it out, you know, Popular's on the WB from 1999 to 2001. And then by 2003, you were back on, I guess for the first time FX with Nip Tuck. And I guess the question there is that must've been an unusual pitch. And I wonder, you know, just what inspired it, how it was received. This was the first time that rather than doing a show as, as was the case with popular, that sort of fits an existing mold, you're going to kind of pave your own way here. And I would think at the beginning, now you've got, now you've got cred doing that. But at the time, I'm sure there was plenty of resistance. Yeah, that was a great, experience for me i had a really really terrible experience at the wb like really bad i had homophobic executives i was constantly being told to change who i was and what i was writing and i always felt like i was 15 years old you know back pre-shrink where the you know it was very difficult for me yeah and i kept trying and trying and trying and for two years was really marching to somebody else's, I think, drummer because they'd say, well, cancer worked on Dawson's Creek, so why don't you do that on your show? Don't do it, but be canceled. It was always that. Yeah. And I had an obligation to the actors, so I was trying and whatever, and it ended. And they canceled the show after two seasons. And I remember thinking, well, that wasn't a good ending. <laughs> so what do I do next? And I really wasn't interested in that genre. You know, I was doing like a, a show about murderous cheerleaders i was trying to write a satire of everything else that was on the wb right, but they right. never figured that out but <laughs> but it was a show about ambition you know right, right so i just decided okay well what do you want to do and what do you want to be you've got to foot in a door and your next move has to be pretty good and i thought well you know the person that i really love the most and admire the most was mike nichols and at that point in my life and in my career i was constantly doing that game that a lot of young people do mm -hmm. which is like I want a career like X. Yeah. I want to be like X. Now, of course, I'm like, I just want to be myself. Right. But I didn't then. Right. And my favorite Mike Nichols movie was Carnal Knowledge. Yeah. And I remember watching for the millionth time Carnal Knowledge and then reading an article about plastic surgery. And in my brain, I'm like, well, what if plastic surgery, which nobody was doing on television right. except for a reality right. show called The Swan. Remember The Swan? Vaguely, yeah. I thought, well, what if I mix those two? And FX had just started. They had the shield. So Joe Cohen, who's still my agent at mm -hmm. CAA, marched me into Peter Liguori and Kevin Riley. And they, they heard the pitch and they're like, okay, well, this is great. And I was shocked that they were going to let me write it because yeah. it was so dark and different than anything I'd done. Of course, they paid me scale. Yeah. <laughs> but I was thrilled to do it. And then we had all these different director candidates. And, and Peter and Kevin kept saying, There's -uh. they're not getting it. They're not getting what you're trying to do. And then Peter said out of the blue one day, would you consider directing it? And I'm like, well, I've never done that really before. I did one episode of Popular, but this is a big, expensive yeah, yeah. pilot. So then they said, well, why don't you prepare and bring everything in? And I, you know, then I spent two weeks doing mood boards and sketch boards and mm -hmm. all this stuff. And I came in and, you know, they gave me the job on the spot. And that really became part of my directing career, showrunner, director yeah. that I loved, creating something and then directing it. And then... That was just sort of the birth of a different part of my life and career. And then the show got on the air and then it did really well. And yeah. then it started to win awards. And it was a great entry point to becoming the me that I, I wanted to become, I right. felt. And you've said, I think the first award that you got, I guess, was for that at the Globes in like 2004 or something. And we'll come back to that in the context of Feud. But just yeah. that was the just to give a sense of that you were personally gaining more traction, obviously. You have said, quote, I never would have had Glee or American Horror Story, which were the next two things, if I had not done this pilot that I had called Pretty Handsome, mm -hmm. that I was sure was going to go, and it didn't go, and I was devastated at the time, but out of that came those two projects, close quote. So what happened there? Why did that not go, and then why did that lead to the other two going? 
Well, you know, every great success that I've had in my life has come from a disappointment that I was devastated by. And then I sort of have to pause in the grief of it and think and be clear. You know, most re recently I had that with OJ, the People versus OJ Simpson. That only happened because I had done, you know, the normal hard yes. for HBO and had a great relationship with them. And then I did a pilot called Open. And again, I was sure it was going to go. And then they, they did not want it to go. It was a very strange pilot with a lot of sexuality to it. And I was like, wait, you're kidding. And I was really upset. And I called Dana Walden and she said, just do what you did before. Get really quiet and something will come to you. And the next day came the OJ Simpson That's pilot. That's crazy. So... That happened with Pretty Handsome, and it was a, it was a great move because it did give birth to Glee and American Horror Story, but it also sort of cemented my relationship in a really cool way with John Langraff. Oh, yeah. That has been and Dana Walden, which has been very important to me. So I did this Pretty Handsome pilot, and it was it was an interesting show. It was about Joseph Fiennes played a gynecologist in a small town who realizes that he is has always been a woman. So it was really dealing with transgender yeah. issues. And we made the pilot, and Carrie Ann Moss was in it, and Jonathan Groff. It was the first time he was in front of a camera, I think. And and I would just come off a lot of awards and stuff for Nip Tuck, and I did it, and I thought it was a go, and everybody loved it. And, and John just called me, and he said, I can't, I just don't think that we're going to be able to do this one for various reasons. But a lot of it was it was very pushed and very racy, and, you know, it was a different era. And... It didn't have, I think, a lot of support within the company. Because John at that time, that he was still always at FX. FX. Yes. Okay. He, John took over FX, I think, my second year into Nip Tuck. Mm -hmm. But he handled himself in such a way that it wasn't like the, you know, and I've had people who have not handled themselves with delivering bad news. Yeah. I don't know if we want to talk about <laughs> that. So it was, I knew that he felt bad about it, but he went at it with such honesty and such candor and... It put me into a lighter space as opposed to a darker space. So I had to examine, like, okay, why am I wanting to do that? Well, it kind of has the same tone of, as Nip Tuck. Maybe I need to grow and do something different. So what's different? And then within a week, I got a hold of an Ian Brennan script. It was called Glee. It was a movie script, and it, but it was very different mm -hmm. than what we did. I think in Ian's movie script, the Mr. Shoe, Matt Morrison character sold crystal meth or something. It was dark. And so, but I just thought, right. you know, what's not on the air is a family musical and it's musicals have never worked on television. And what's not on the air is something optimistic. So I talked to Ian and then I brought in Brad Falchuk, my writing partner. And I said, what if we just really try and do something that's in the tone of singing in the rain or something lighter? So, and that was one of those projects that every step along the way, People loved it, and a yeah, but, and a yeah, but, but Dana and, and Peter Liguori, who was at that point then running Fox, got it on the air. And it, then it just, you know, people saw it and found it, and then it just kind of exploded. exploded. And also, pre-Pretty um, Handsome, I had had a pitch called American Horror Story that I kept talking to Landgraf about, and he would say, I like it, but it's not ready. And there's something off with the idea. Keep working on it. So I finally then attacked that and got it to a point where it became an anthological series. And that was the, the every year we burned down the sets and start over. And he was like, okay, that's that. So from that pretty handsome melancholy came these two big hits in my career. Amazing. And it only, they only happened, I think, because I was forced to get quiet yeah. and really say to myself, well, what do you really want to talk about? Well, with Glee, I want to just address first, because we should say this was on from 2009 to 2015, and I think for a lot of people was the first time that they were, I mean, Nip Tuck had been big, and inside the business, I think people certainly knew who you were, but there are not many producers and showrunners who Joe Public knows the name of even, and I think Glee made you one of them, right? Yeah. I mean, it was sort of a weird four quadrant massive success and you know it launched a tour the merchandising the the music aspect of it you know all of those itunes number one hits yeah. that we had it was like a, a different animal and i was sort of the face of it i think in a weird way in terms of being the the i believed in the message of it yeah. so much because it was 
you know, Brad and Ian, I wrote it, but there was a lot of my childhood in there. There was a lot of the Kurt Hummel character. The show choir stuff was my, like, so. But we should say that for anyone who hasn't seen it, I mean, it's far beyond just being a musical. Also was a groundbreaker just in terms of introducing not only even LGBTQ things, but also everything disabled, just things that it was about as inclusive as any show had been up to that point. Well, that was the point of it. And, you know, it was a real reaction too that I had tried to do a lot of those things on popular at the WB and they were so terrified and they would never let me do any of them. And now I had executives who would say, no, lean into that. Yeah. Do more of that. So Dana, between Dana and Peter and Gary and Kevin at that point, that was the year that Obama had just been elected and then it was Glee and Modern Family back to back and the new gay characters and gay situations were going into people's homes. And and I do think that I believe in that idea that if you know people who are different from you and you can become friends with them, it will maybe help change your mind. And a lot of people's friends are television characters. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it launched a lot of conversation that I was very proud to do. Absolutely. And you have said of the show, quote, I guess in a weird, twisted way, I was trying to relive the childhood I never had, close quote. So yeah. was it? It felt like a particularly personal thing for you, particularly during those, I guess you were most involved during the first two years. But why was it the way you described in that quote? Well, I think it was a blue sky show. And I think that sort of it was a show where the underdogs would always win. That's what the mood of the country felt like then, too. It's like it just felt like something had shifted. And it was a show that really believed in happy endings and... We wrote it not reflecting a world that we live in, but the world that we wanted to live in. So it had that that thing. And but who I I never ever thought that show would be anything. Like I just wanted to get it on the air so I could say, you know, <laughs> here it is. We did, you know, don't stop believing on the air. Great, like I did my job. Like <laughs> I never in a million. That was one of right. the biggest shocks of my life that that show became what it became. That's so funny. So. Two years into that being on the air is when you went off and, and at least when the airing of the first American Horror Story was, the first right. installment. And what I want to kind of hammer down here is just how unusual and crazy it is that you went from Nip Tuck, which you've called, quote, a really sexual and incredibly dark, close quote, show, to Glee, which you've called, quote, really youthful and optimistic and poppy, close quote, to American Horror Story, which you've called, quote, dark and gothic, close quote. In between all of these, there's three movies. One's a family dramedy, Running with Scissors. One's a rom-com, Eat, Pray, Love. And one's a period piece drama, The Normal Heart, for TV. I mean, most people get pigeonholed a little bit. And even if they are talented enough to, to deserve to break out of that pigeonhole, they don't get the chance. So why do you think it is that your interests are so varied and also that you were able to make them come to life? I was talking about it yesterday with a friend of mine, you know, like I I can honestly say when I was growing up, I loved The Godfather and What's Up Doc equally, you know, (laughs) they could not have been more different. Same here, yeah. And I feel like I am just a weird person with a lot of different hobbies and interests. And I also feel like in our business, it's very, you know, I'm gay and it's very easy to get stereotyped as the ex person. I haven't really done it by design. I've just done it because like, okay, if, I'm, if I dabble in one pond for too long, I want to try a different water temperature. But I think that I love all different genres and I, and I just sort of bounce around between them because it keeps things fresh for me. And I, and I guess maybe subconsciously in the early days, it was a way for me to not be stereotyped mm-hmm. when I have felt as a minority that I'm so stereotyped. Mm-hmm. So... I think unconsciously that was the choice. And now I would say it really is by design. I mean, I really love it. Like I'm doing so many different things now. I'm doing, you know, American Horror Story. And then we're doing the Versace stuff. And then we're doing Pose about the ballroom, Trump years in New York in 86. And then I'm doing 911, which is about, you know, with Angela Bassett about first responders. So they're, you know, firemen and and police detectives. So it's a very all incredibly different. I just, I love it. And I'm privileged to be able to allow to try. Yeah, no, it's amazing. But is there something, I guess, just to follow up on that? What is it about you and your interactions, even with executives who are the ones that generally are the roadblocks, the impediments for, for getting to do such varied things? 
Is it really because you ha- you developed the special relationship with FX that there was the mutual trust that allowed a lot of this to happen at that network? But even, you know, some of this was, was outside of it. A lot of it was outside of FX, certainly the movies and even Glee. So what's the secret? I don't know if there is a secret other than when I do these things, you know, what I try and do is is with my partners, be it Peter Rice or Dana Walden or John Landgraf or Amy Pascal or Michael Lombardo and Richard Plepler like at HBO, like I just tell them this is why I really dig this thing. This is what turns me on about this idea. And this is how I see it. And this is the tone of it. And this is the look of it. And this is the cast of it. And I feel like it's my job to sort of let them know why I'm excited. And I guess because I've had enough things that have worked, yeah. they're like, okay. We'll try it. Yeah. You know, not everything does work, but I've had enough things that have that shouldn't have. You know, a musical comedy on a network should never have worked. <laughs> we were thrilled enough that it did. Right. An anthological horror show should never have worked. It did. The Normal Heart should have was in you know development hell for thirty years. We got that made and it was successful. So I don't know. I just I'm lucky enough that that's the victory of my career. I think is that. I've been super, super fortunate to find mentors and executives in my life who have said, okay, you're so fucking weird, but we're going <laughs> to take a chance on you. And they have. Right. And it's fun. But it's- there's got to be something also I think about you that that engenders trust and loyalty. Because even if we just look at the actors that you've worked with, and a lot of this was within the American Horror Story anthology series, but then a lot of this extends beyond it. You've... You've worked with a lot of the same people many, many times. And let's just list for listeners, the queens of your stock company, I guess, are Jessica Lange and Sarah Paulson. But beyond that, Julia Roberts, Kathy Bates, Francis Conroy, Angela Bassett, Evan Peters, Lily Rabe, Dennis O'Hare, Matt Bomer, and the list goes on in terms of people who you have worked with on multiple occasions, Mm -hmm. multiple projects. Was that always sort of something that you wanted to emulate? I guess there are people like Woody Allen or Scorsese or people who have done that to one degree or another, but, or did it just work out that way for you? I think it comes from me having a sense of, I wish that I had a more of a close knit family growing up and was maybe felt a part of a community growing up. And I didn't, you know, so I guess it's come from my want to have a family, Yeah, you know, and I like working with, I have the same collaborators, you know, behind the scenes as well. I like working with, with people over and over again, because the more you do it, the better your shorthand is. And the better your shorthand, the better you can communicate. And, you know, they're all world-class artists. And the thing that I think they like working with me is because, at least they've told me, is that when you're like an actor or you're a cinematographer, it's very rare for somebody to say, well, what do you want to do next? Mm -hmm. What's your dream? And I do that with people. I'm really interested. Like, okay, Jessica, what have you always wanted to play? Mm -hmm. Or Sarah Paulson, what have you... Feel now in your career that you have not played that you want to or what's a great collaborator you want to work with for example Sarah this year was very active on the show she has many many scenes with the character and I said well, who do you want to work with and she said I want to work with Allison Pill and I'm like mm-hmm. done so I called up Allison and told her what it was and she said yes so that was Sarah's idea and That's I think cool. that when you empower people to have a say in their own creative lives they like to return to that space you know but you also imagine them outside the box. I mean, I, the way I understand it, you were the one that initiated the idea of, hey, let's have Sarah Paulson play twins. Yeah. Just some of the more out there parts that these people have played that you've asked Kathy Bates to have a, a beard and just all kinds of things that I'm sure I can say with quite a great deal of confidence nobody else ever asked them to do. I mean, may, maybe their initial reaction to some of these ideas was not, well, I'd be curious. I mean, you go to them with some weird stuff, but it, it ends up you deliver. Yeah. I mean, nobody's ever said no. Yeah. You know, I think they trust me at this point. And I feel like that they like being in a dangerous comfort zone. And they know I go through every frame of the footage and I protect them. You know, I try and get them as much as I can, particularly women. I'm trying to get them the titles and the money and the credit because I think they deserve it. Mm-hmm. So right off the bat, there is that, you know, I like writing roles for women over 40 because I don't think the industry services them Mm -hmm. and they're great and they're still great and they were always great and they have so much to give and they're wonderful 
people and we don't do that to men so i've always been very confused about that so that's in the water too yeah yeah i think also my company now you know in the past year we've been doing this this thing i have a foundation called the half foundation and 50 percent of all the directorial slots go to women and that goes all the way down to the crew so i feel like people now feel like that i see them and yeah. that I'm interested in their well-being and I take care of them. And that's really what I want to do. I think they're all national treasures in their way. And it's such a great gift, you know, to be a fan of Kathy Bates. Yeah. And then have Kathy saying, like, people don't write for me anymore. And I said, well, I'm going to. And then boom, you know. Oh, it's great. It's I mean, really rewarding. It's crazy to think that really before you, for a period of years there, Jessica Lang, even with her two Oscars, or Kathy Bates with her one, or a number of these women, Angela Bassett, you didn't see them all that much. And so it, it, I'm sure that you've kind of given them a new lease on life as an actress. I think so. But I'm like the world's biggest fan. You know, I like, I reach out to people that I just love and I'm like, okay, you're not leaving the room until you agree to do this yeah. with me. And I've done that with a lot of people, all of the people that you named. I've yeah. done that with, and I keep doing it with other people. Like yeah. I just love that part of my life. So I want to ask you about your two quote unquote, normal projects, because they are uh, interesting. Are there any normal projects? Well, what I say by normal is I mean the new normal 2012 to 2013 and then the normal heart 2014. So there's this period of years where it was sort of like a roller coaster with those two, because with the new normal, which was, I guess, pretty much based on your own experience with you and your partner having a surrogate to have a child, Mm -hmm. this was a sitcom that you started with and then it didn't go as you would have liked and then at the other end of the spectrum a year later you know you you come out with the normal heart which is a tv film version of a play that had meant a lot to you for most of your life so i just wonder if you can give the just for somebody that's out there maybe as a struggling writer or producer or whatever this is an interesting lesson i think in that you can be on top of the world as creatively you certainly were going into new normal, and then still run into bullshit in a way there. But on the other hand, you can bring to fruition something that you wanted to do your your whole life right after that. So maybe just as as a little microcosm of, of the creative roller coaster that sometimes people go on, can you talk about those two back to back? Yeah, you know, I, I remember that period of my life as, you know, I had just been, I had been married, I had just had a baby. The new normal was very loosely based on my life, mm-hmm. but I thought it was provocative and it was, I wanted that to be, I wanted those characters to be on television and I wanted people to understand the humanity of that situation, not just for the, the two gay parents, but also the surrogate. And, you know, it was on the air for a year and it was not a pleasant experience working there. I love CBS. Uh, it was NBC. NBC. I yeah. love Jennifer Salky, but you know, it didn't do huge numbers, but I thought it did okay, and I had high hopes for it. I thought it was going to be that thing that was going to catch on, and, and you know, they told me that it was coming back, so I trusted them and believed them, and then suddenly I got a call saying it wasn't, so I felt very, like, upset about it. Mm-hmm. It was a very different way, for example, than John Landgraf had called and said, I can't do this, and here's the reason why. Right. You have dark days and you have dark moments when things like that happen and you trust people and then suddenly you feel betrayed. And I always just feel like in show business, the best thing you can do is be a straight shooter and say, this is the truth. Mm -hmm. Because you always get caught in a lie and it never works out. So I learned that from that experience. But the other thing that I learned was, again, from every great failure comes some new breath of life. You know, I got to do the normal heart. I got to sort of you know, work with Larry Kramer on that project. And it was his passion. I would, you know, it took him 30 years to get it made. And we got it made at HBO and they were great about green lighting and supporting it. And Richard Plepler was amazing. And Lombardo was amazing. So that's the game. Like you can't win every single time. Nobody ever does. And I always say that the only difference between me and the 10 guys that were in and women who were in my writing group when I first started out here in Hollywood, is I'm the only one of those people who just didn't take no for an answer and didn't become devastated over the rejection. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because I grew up, like I would get 
pushed down and I just, what are you going to do? You're going to stay in the ground? No, you're going to get up Mm -hmm. and you're going to keep going. And I've always had that philosophy like, okay, well, that didn't work out and it hurt. Okay, so what's, what's the next thing that might? And I never, looking back on them, I always get confused because I feel exactly the same way about my failures as I do about the successes. I feel like I learned a lot mm-hmm. and I met a lot of people that I love and some of those people I get to keep bringing along the way, you know. From the new normal, I got Andrew Rannells. Yeah. So we're still great friends and we're working together and we're doing these things together. So maybe that's all I was supposed to get out of it. And I found out what I don't like to do is I don't like to do a half hour on NBC. Never going to do that again. That is not ever happening. So, you know, I found that to be interesting. Like, okay, but I didn't know that when it was happening. But all I can say to people and I, you know, when I lecture and do colleges and stuff and all that stuff, and I say that to young people, it's like, don't take anything here personally because it's called show business. It is a business. There are metrics of success that you must hit. And sometimes you're lucky enough to hit it. And sometimes you aren't. And so it does hurt, but dust yourself off and keep on plotting. That's what I've tried to do. That's great advice. And, you know, another thing that the new normal and the normal heart have in common, along with a lot of your, almost every one of your other shows or films that you've had the creative freedom to do something with that sounds like popular would not have been one of those is they bring in gay themes and subject matter and characters. And I just wonder, being a gay man who's grown over these years and shows that we've been talking about to be in a position of, of power in the business, do you feel a sense of responsibility to tell those stories and make sure that they're a part of whatever project you do, even you know, even if it's something that's not directly about gay subject matter in the way that the normal heart might have been? it still shows up in other shows and, and films of yours. So I just wonder, is that driven by a, a sense that you've got to kind of deliver because you can't? It doesn't. It really just comes from this feeling that I have of this, this is who I am. This is what I know. This is what I'm interested in. I never hear African-American showrunners ask, well, why do you have black characters right. in your show? <laughs> but I do hear gay showrunners. Hey. Ask that. And it, it for me, I don't I'm not trying to prove anything. I'm not trying to do anything but project back to the world a world that I either see or that I want to see or that I wish was different or that I think is fine. So I'm really just writing from a personal place, you know? Mm-hmm. And before I do a project, I try and find like what's my way in. Like, you know, with Versace, I had to I was interested in that for a very specific reason so it's it's just very organic it's nothing is i feel like i haven't changed i feel what changed is the executives have changed the executives are now great like they want those characters they know that launching a conversation about anything and visibility means a more diversified audience which leads to success Mm -hmm. but that wasn't there in the late 90s when you were starting out you know, Nina Jacobson and I, she's a producer mm-hmm. on OJ and Versace and on Pose. You know, in 1997, Nina started a group called Out There. And there were like, you know, I think there were 20 of us. And that was a period of time in this town where you could be fired if you were gay. I knew agents who were fired because they were gay and too Jesus. flamboyant. So I remember we would have these meetings out around a swimming pool and talk about like, what can we do when we need to be visible and we shouldn't be afraid? And how do we get gay characters on the air or in movies when they're always trying to take them out? And so I feel like we've come a long way. You know, Nina and I talk about it all the time in 20 years. We just mm-hmm. really have. But it's not enough. Yeah, of course. of course. So I just want to keep keep on doing it, you know? So last year, you and she and a lot of other talented people worked on American Crime, the people versus O.J. Simpson. That was a huge success and and sparked, I don't know, was it always intended to be an anthology series in a way of its own? Or was that, or a series at least of its own? Or did that just come about because, or did that idea come about because of the success of OJ? You know, what had happened was, is that they had set that up at Nina Jacobson and Brad Simpson had set it up at the Fox Network. And they were working on it and struggling to get it greenlit because how do you monetize that? How do you make any money from 10 episodes that then go away, right? Right. So I read the script 
literally, I think the day that Dana Walden took over that job running, not just the Fox studio, but the Fox network. And I called her up and I said, I really, really, really want to do this. How do we get this on the air? And John Landgraf was weirdly FX was one of the producing partners on it. So he had some skin in the game too. And we came up with this idea that we had always, we had actually been talking about spinning off American horror story and doing different types of American, what story an mm -hmm. American love story or American crime story was discussed. And I think at one point I was going to do Charles Manson for mm -hmm. that. And then we said, well, why don't we do OJ as the first American crime story? And that way it makes economic sense and you can get the money that you need, the millions and millions and millions and millions to make those episodes correctly. And then you have a spinoff series that, who knows, in success makes sense. And of course, OJ was a huge success. And So you were the, the initial appeal to you, though, was the idea that you could do a something about American crimes or specifically OJ? All I wanted to do was get those scripts made. I didn't care what it took. Yeah. And I was, and Nina and Brad, you know, were struggling trying, even though everybody in the, in the Fox, Peter Rice and Landgraf and everybody loved the scripts, but they were just trying to figure out, okay, wait, we don't do really mini series like that here at Fox or at FX. And they still don't really. Mm -hmm. I mean, so how do we, how do we get the money to get it made? And then when I was just not going to let go until it got greenlit, you know, we all figured it out together and then we were off to the races and then it was like, okay, well, let's do that. American Horror Stories at FX. This is a companion. We'll move it to FX. It's cable. We can go darker. So it all sort of happened in an interesting way, but it was, it was a project that I remember reading from a failure, which was open at HBO mm -hmm. and reading those two scripts standing up at my kitchen table and thinking, I'm going to get this made if I have to pay for it myself because I loved it so much. And I thought it was different for me. It was a different tone than I've ever done. It was, I instantly knew that when I read them, I wanted Sarah Paulson in that part and that she was going to play that part by hook or by crook. <laughs> I instantly saw Cuba and Courtney. Like I just saw it. And so that's the great thing about my life here is that I'm able to sort of identify, I have a really weird idea. And then we all sort of sit around yeah. and figure it out. So that, Brings us to 2017 and to Feud, Betty and Joan, which uh, let's just read. start out by reading back to you something that the New York Times ran in March. Quote, you could write a history of women in Hollywood in its glory and shame and with all its attendant ageism and sexism by charting Davis and Crawford's careers. In Feud, Betty and Joan, Ryan Murphy does just that, close quote. So I'd like to ask you, what was the driving reason for doing this? Was it to because you saw these women as sort of a microcosm of, of the sort of sexism that continues to this day? Or was it really specifically that you loved the story of these two women? It's such a weird way that that show got made. You know, how it really started was I had had every year I sort of have a big meeting with my agents, you know, Brian Lord and Kevin Eubane mm -hmm. and Joe Cohen and Craig Gehring. And, and we were sort of talking about like, what movies am I interested in? And then I always talk myself out of it because I'm much more interested in television shows. Yeah. And Brian Lord and I were talking about a really great book that that featured a feud between Tommy Toon and Michael Bennett back when they were doing Dream Girls and Nine. And I said out loud, oh, God, I wish I could watch something every week that had the power and, and um, pain of a feud. And Brian said, well, why don't you do that? So then for a while, I was going to do Tommy and Michael, but that was very complicated because you needed to buy the rights to right, those musicals. Right. And I didn't want to do that. But then I remembered, wait a minute, Dee Dee Gardner and Brad Pitt and I have been working on this script that we own, that we bought outright called Best Actress about Betty Davis and Joan Crawford making whatever happened to Baby Jane and Onward. And I thought, well, that would be an amazing first feud. And you, we should know, have been like me and Oscar's obsessive since Obsessed. you were a kid, right? Obsessed. Like <laughs> I would have, I had Oscar slumber parties at seven years old. I mean, it was, it was, you know, it was show business. It was Hollywood. It was glamorous. And back then there was no social media. So you really had to watch the Academy Awards to get your yearly fix of movie stars because they were much more removed from you. And you then know, they were, we both read a book that was important also, right? 
what was the Oscar? The Inside Oscar? Inside yeah, Oscar. And I became friends with Damien Bona and Mason Wiley, both deceased. That's cool. That so, yeah. So, anyway, Jessica and Susan were already attached to that movie, and I called them up, and I said, I have a crazy idea. What if we do a 10-hour movie? Because they had always wanted to do it, and yeah. Jessica had worked with me right. in this capacity. Right. So she said, oh, that means I get more monologues. Great. <laughs> and Susan was a little harder, but loved the idea, particularly of working with, you know, half of the directors being women. Right. So they signed on and John, I call, I, then I was like, okay, now I have to sell it. So I thought it was going to be really hard because every time you pitch something with women, the stereotype though is like, oh, that's going to be hard. But the reality is not like I called John Landgraf and within 30 seconds he said, I want that show. That's just, <laughs> I want that show. So he bought it, and then, you know, we worked a long time on those scripts. They were very research dependent, mm -hmm. and and then we made it, and it worked, and and you know, we're off now writing the second great feud that we're going to do, which is Charles and Diana, which is cool. really great. Yeah, that Robbie Bates and Ned Martell are writing, and I really love that, and we're going to shoot that early next year. So it's a great. I like it as an anthological show because it's a two-hander. Yeah. It's about passion and love turned to rage, which I always think is a great thing to watch and explore. Right. Well, with our with our remaining few minutes here, I just want to hammer down on some specifics about Feud that people who have seen it or who are catching up, it's going to be of interest. Obviously, this is a show that deals with two Best Actress winners playing two Best Actress winners. Some people... Obviously, I think probably maybe the most common question I would guess you've gotten is, did anything on your set resemble the the horrors that you chronicle in your film and just the tensions that came about for Betty and Joan being in a very similar dynamic? It sounds like from everything I've ever heard you say, it was a it was a perfectly pleasant experience. It really was. Yeah. I mean, it was a love fest because Jessica and Susan had been through it all, you know, it, they didn't come up in the studio system, so right. they were never pitted against each other. They had known each other and had wanted to work together for a long time. So they actually worked well together and supported each other and had great ideas for scenes for each other. So none of that had happened. And, you know, hilariously and thankfully, they were both nominated, yes. you know, for <laughs> Best Actress as opposed to right. poor Joan Crawford, who wasn't invited to the party. Right. So it had a very... You know, Jessica and Susan are staunch yeah. feminists and believe in equality. And they're not going to do that bullshit. They're just not th those people. They're not interested in petty gossiping. I've never met two women who are couldn't be least interested in yeah. that. So it was never in the water with them. And that was great. You mentioned the 63 Oscars where all the shit went down with yeah. those two. That seems to me to be an episode of your show that is particularly special to you and that you clearly devoted a lot of time and attention and research to show off for a minute. Like what went into that episode? A lot. Well, I, the moment it was green lit on that phone call with John, I remember hanging up and saying, Oh my God, I get to recreate the Oscars. I cannot <laughs> wait. So it was always my like Holy grail moment. Right. That episode. Uh, I always knew where it was going to fall in. And we spent many, many, many months, you know, researching it and, it started off that we got to go to Santa Monica and we found out, oh my God, we get to shoot this exactly where they did the Oscars that year. And then you walk in and you're like, oh crap, the only 20% of it is the same. So what are we going to do? Well, let's move it to a different auditorium or find someplace. And I was like, no, I want those women to stand on that stage where this happened and we're going to do it. So we went into it with a microscopic attention to detail, you know, from the clothes to the hair to the green room to researching what kind of toothpicks were in the olives and the martinis in the green room too well the wings i mean you do that amazing tracking shot yeah and that was always in that was also in the script which okay. is really long tracking shot because you know i wanted people to understand what it's like to you watch the oscars you watch any award show and i remember the first time i ever won an award like being let off the wings and you're like wait this is not what is this <laughs> it's super cool and interesting and it's just a different perspective and i wanted people to know that we rebuilt everything we spent many months we put a lot millions of dollars into it the exterior and interior and then we had that steady cam shot and i've never been that technical of a director you know i'm very much interested in the acting component and the design but i was really really interested in this so Nelson Craig, my great DP, and, and I, and 
Judy Becker, who's my production designer, and Lou Eirich, who's my costumer, we spent a lot of time mapping that shot and designing what it was and walked it for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then we, I think we allotted a day and a half to shoot it, which would have been 16 takes. I was praying on take 16, we would get it right. <laughs> but everybody was so into it, including Jessica, yeah. that we nailed it on the fourth take. And I, it was it literally, is, I think, one of the most exciting things ever to do a Steadicam that that's long because you're walking, you know, you're in Video Village watching right. it. You're like, please don't look in the camera. <laughs> please don't hit the glass. Okay, bye, bye, bye. And then right. at the end, you know, everybody just cheered when <laughs> we got it. It was really joyous and fun and a true tribute and a love of, I think it expressed my love of those women and those movies and show business in yeah. general, you know, because I love it and I still do love it. And I think that's clear in the amount of, research and prep that went into this. I just wonder, you know, there are certain moments that nobody except the participants could have known exactly what happened. So if you got Joan potentially colluding with Hedda about taking down Betty at the Oscars, stuff like that, how do you approach that? Because I, I think that, and we should note, because this we didn't cover yet, that you had you had met and interviewed Betty Davis mm-hmm. and all that. So I want to bring that in and just also ask you, you know, I have to because it's 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 out there. How do you respond to the Olivia de Havilland angle of this, which has thrown a, you know, a curveball, just that the one person who's still around from the golden age who's in this is at 101 now resisting a little bit. Now, I I know you went into this with the purest of intentions and, you know, all of that. But just if you can if you can address that at all. You know, it's interesting. I'm writing an essay right now called, you know, the juice didn't sue me, but Melanie Wilkes did. <laughs> and I think that's going to end up okay. Because you know, here's the thing. I think whenever you do, first of all, you know, the thing about Olivia de Havilland, as I'll say, is, you know, I have utmost respect and love for her. And I've loved her since I was a little kid. I've watched all of her films. And when I would talk to Betty Davis, you know, and I had that experience with her, we talked a lot about Olivia and both of our affection for her. And I really think that if you watch the show, you can feel that in the scenes. Like, it's with great respect and admiration. And I think Catherine did an amazing job portraying her. And Catherine Zeta-Jones and I, when we were making it, talked about how much we loved Olivia de Havilland and what a, what a pioneer she was. So I think if you watch the show, which people did, you know, there's absolutely nothing but love. There's no malice. There's There's nothing said that's not treating her like a, a lady. And you've said the only reason you didn't reach out was you figured you don't want to bother a lady who's 100 years old in France, right? No, but I also have a history of not doing that on my shows that are dealing with real people. Like, we never reached out to O.J. Simpson. Marsha Clark, Sarah finally did after six episodes of Tinmer in the Can. We never talked to Shapiro. I have a t- tradition of, of not doing that and and... I think that that's important because, you know, we're not making a documentary, we're making a docudrama and it's sort of history meets perspective, right? So it's my job and the actor's job to sort of have a point of view about something. It's why, you know, I'm doing the Versace story and I I, I have no interest in meeting Donatella Versace because she has her story and, and we have our story. Our mm-hmm. story is based on a book. So about the Olivia thing, you know, I was saddened by it because I felt that I really had written and done and produced and directed a love letter to these women. And I was like, oh, no, really? I love her so much. I'm sorry that she feels badly about it, but I don't know why she feels badly. And the other thing that I think people should know about, you know, the docudramas that I do, either be it Feud or American Crime Story with OJ and... Charles and Diana and on and on, you know, we don't just write those and film them. We write them and lawyers read them and they say, where did you get this piece of information from? Where is this quote of Olivia de Havilland coming from? Obviously, the construct of doing a documentary wraparound is a divisive docudrama that's been done, you know, since God was a boy. But everything that we have Olivia or Joan or Betty saying is, I would say, based completely on existing information, either research or interviews. And in the case of Olivia de Havilland, we have a very long document that we had, as we did with Joan and Betty, where we say, this is where we got this line from. 
She said this in an interview. Is it directly the exact line? No, some of it's tweaked, but it's all based on fact. It's all based on research. And this had been vetted for months before we even shot any episode. So I don't also understand the idea of, of someone saying, well, you're doing a docudrama, but you didn't come to me for permission. You know, that's because what we're doing is sort of a piece of history. And like I said, from my funny little thing at the top there, we never got OJ Simpson's permission. (laughs) We never went to Marsha Clark and said, is this okay for us to do? And in fact, she said, I don't want you to do it. Really? So I feel like Olivia de Havilland is a historical figure. And I feel that I'm just sad she didn't love it as much as everybody else seemed to. But I also have the support of Fox and we have 15 lawyers who have reviewed every claim and think there absolutely is no claim. Yeah. Well, we don't have to go on any further about that. I mean, it seems like clearly we're coming from a, I a was. positive place. On but that. you never want anybody like that who you love and revere to to be unhappy, sure. you know? I think if you showed up in Paris, she would, she would love you. But anyway. I do too. Yeah. Maybe I'll get to meet her in court, but I hope it doesn't go that far. <laughs> the first thing I would do is say, can I have an autograph? Right. I really love you. I really do. You do have to, in a way, give some credit. At a, on the eve of your 101st birthday, you're filing a lawsuit. It's kind of crazy. I hope, I I'm, have, hope yes. I'm doing anything at 101. I have nothing but love and admiration for her. And sure. I do think it will all end up okay. Sure. You know? Well, with the last minute here, I hope we can do just a rapid fire. The first kind of sentence that comes to your mind about a couple of big picture things. Okay. Do you see any common thread that runs through all of your work? I do. I feel like it's all about outsiders who want to get in. And it's all about people who are repeatedly told no, who will not accept that answer. I think that that now that we've had this hour-long psychotherapy session, well, <laughs> I have, you know, I don't really think about a lot of these things, but I think that's it. There has been a tremendous amount of progress towards gay rights on and off the air over the past decade or so, as we've discussed. And that obviously roughly coincides with the beginning of Glee and a lot of your other work, including The Normal Heart. A lot of people think that's not coincidental, that projects like these really help to change people's minds and hearts by humanizing gay people for a lot of people who don't know or think they know gay people. How does it make you feel when you hear that these shows might have made that sort of an actual, you know, societal difference. Well, you know, I feel really proud about that. Like, I never went into anything thinking that that was going to be, you know, part of the gig or part of the legacy. Like, I really was just trying to do a piece of entertainment. But I'm proud of it. I'm really proud of of the the work and the characters. And, you know, more than just even the the work itself, I'm really proud sometimes of the fact that you know, the people behind the scenes who maybe don't know people like those characters are illuminated and have said to me, like, it really changed my perspective. And that's just a great side benefit. But I'm really super proud. And I also now feel very angry, you know. I feel very angry about the state of the country. And I feel like the best thing that I can do is sit up straight and shut up and just write characters that are going through difficulties so that people can see that and I think as human beings hopefully recognize that pain is pain is pain that's what I'm interested in doing as my sort of political activism I can see you finding something for immigrants or things in somewhere in your projects I would imagine something like that the other yeah we deal with a lot of we deal with a lot of these issues in this season of American Horror Story yeah which is which has been very interested and I think much needed well, lastly, why do you still push yourself this hard? You are probably the busiest guy I know in, in this business, and you don't have to be. So why why not pace it out a little more? What is it that is lighting the fire under your ass to keep working this hard? You know, I never think, I never feel that I'm working hard enough. That's, I think, what is the key to me. And I always, I feel so lucky and fortunate that, you know, I figured it out and I got in the 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 room and I got in the door and now that I'm in the room, I keep thinking like they're going to throw me out so that if I keep, but it's also a thing, you know, that I can kind of now, you know, get things made. And if you have an opportunity to tell a story or bring a dream to life or make other people's dreams come true, like with the half foundation and Mm -hmm. the actors that I'm casting now on pose, that's going to shoot in the fall who are trans actors, trans women, 
who have been trying to knock down doors for 10 years and can't get a role and they're finally a lead in a show and you get to call them up and say, congratulations, you are the lead. People are going to see you and they burst into tears and can't speak for 10 minutes. It makes it worth it. That's why I keep doing it. And every time I feel like, ugh, okay, <laughs> I just get another sort of inspiration and I have great collaborators who I work with, who I pull them into the dream. And I just... I'm energized by what I do and I, and I have two little boys and I sort of feel like I really want their lives to be different and better than mine with a much healthier perspective and maybe the world can be a little bit more tolerant and what can I do to help that? That's what I'm about. That's what I feel like is the most exciting thing about my work and what I'm really turned on by what I want to keep doing it for. But I do admit that sometimes my, I think looking at my life, if you're out and you look in, I, I understand why people have judgment about it, but they don't understand it. I think, you know, it's not yeah. just me wanting to be ambition for ambition's sake. I'm really trying to do something. I'm trying. Yeah. No, I have so much admiration for what you've already done and I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>